Welcome to the Friday Take, a brand new Fit for Purpose podcast reviewing the week's news and events with me, Matthew McPherson, and my co-host, Nick Forbes. So let's get started. Good afternoon, Nick. It's a cold, rainy Friday afternoon here in London, but it's been a very busy political week. Well, it's been one of those weeks where there's an awful lot happened. And if there wasn't something else even bigger happening in the world at the moment with the uh, Israel-Hamas war, uh, there'd probably be even more coverage of domestic politics. Um, it's been, as you say, quite a week with resignations on both sides. Well, resignations and sackings, of course. It hasn't just all been, uh, all been voluntary. There has been uh, plenty of people sacked as well. Long been a great week for the uh, labour market stats. Uh, well, um, although uh, um, it has been a good week for the over 50s getting back into work, if you are David Cameron, at least. Uh, well, Fraser was Cameron, as we should call him now. Well, not yet, because he hasn't actually officially been introduced to the House of Lords yet. That happens on Monday, I'm told. But um, did you see Scott, Doris's uh, interview uh, over, uh, over the weekend uh, where she basically said, um, I wasn't given a peerage, but somebody from Eton just has to have a word with the king and they're in. Which I thought was a, a bit of a sort of um, dumbing down of what the process is here. But there we are. Well, we've seen a return of David Cameron, Mandelson-like. Although he did make the... I did see that David, um, Peter Mandelson made the joke that uh, David Cameron has only returned once, whereas he returned three times, of course. Um, well, I had a friend text to me saying, uh, where it was being announced, saying, this is the Mandelson manoeuvre, and it didn't work for us either. Well, what do you think of that appointment? It's clearly someone who's got a huge amount of experience. He's, you know, obviously was prime minister for six years, um, leader of the opposition in, the, in, in parliament for the Conservative Party for five. Do you think this is a, a it's certainly taken the headlines. Do you think this is a, a good choice? Uh, do you know, I think it's one of those moves which is probably genuinely good for the country at the moment, but bad for the Conservative Party. And that uh, there's a paradox there, I think, uh, from a political perspective. Good for the country because our reputation internationally has not been great, if I'm honest, over the last few years. Uh, and ever since the Brexit referendum, Britain's role in the world, and particularly when all of our former Conservative Prime Ministers said that they would be perfectly happy to break international law, that really didn't go down well with many of our colleagues internationally. Uh, so I think somebody with the just the experience and connections that David Cameron has will be good to calm a lot of those international relationships. But of course, from a Conservative Party point of view, uh, uh, it's it, uh, huge risks there to be exploited by Labour because... Uh, Rishi can't now present himself as a change candidate and he can't distance himself from austerity and all of the challenges around that either now that he's brought David Cameron back into the government. And that's not to mention before uh, we got to the Greensill stuff, which is still swirling around. And I'm slightly surprised, actually, he's getting quite a lot of press coverage. Uh, it's clearly not put to bed yet. So... Um, uh, and of course, the other thing is David Cameron is a big figure and quite an ego. Will he be happy to be just Foreign Secretary around that cabinet table or will he start straying into other areas? 
interesting questions, which no doubt we'll be reading about in political memoirs in years to come. Of course, though, he's not a risk to Rishi Sunak's leadership in the sense that he's not going to stand to be leader of the Conservative Party, I'm sure at all, but certainly not from the House of Lords. Well, and presumably he can't even uh, submit a letter of no confidence in the Prime Minister because he's not a Tory MP. Um, he certainly can't, although... It does raise a constitutional oddity, though, doesn't it? If the Foreign Secretary, or, I mean, it, it could have, you know, if, if any Secretary of State uh, is serving from the Lords, which means that they can't be questioned by MPs. And I know that's caused some some fallout with the Speaker, who is rightly concerned about how will MPs hold the Foreign Secretary, in this case, to account. But uh, what I think has been interesting, there hasn't really been any criticism from the Labour Party about the fact that it is a member of the House of Lords who is uh, the Foreign Secretary. Of course, there is precedent there. And, you know, their criticism has been more about the fact it was David, it has been David Cameron. Um, well, there hasn't been a particularly huge amount of criticism from the Labour Party around, you know, the the fact that he's in there. Because, of course, it was Gordon Brown who put Lord Mandelson in as first Secretary of State, effectively Deputy Prime Minister of the last Labour government. So it would be hard for the party to attack. Yes. And it, it for me, it raises the, the, the sort of constitutional oddity of having ministers in the Commons and the Lords and can only be questioned by one house or the other, depending on which one they belong to. Uh, and uh, I think it also throws into sharp relief the need for reform, not just in the Lords, but I would say across Parliament as well. Uh, well, you talk about the Reform Party then. Uh, no, no, no. Well, uh, do, do, do reform have an MP at the moment? I think somebody didn't. Somebody fixed. No, they, they don't. That's reclaim. Oh, okay. Aunties. Ah, uh, okay. I, I obviously don't. My reclaim from my reform. Um. So, but yeah, it, it's it's. I think I think you can probably get away with it for, in the foreign secretary's role. You can probably get away with it in a minister or cabinet member without portfolio role because they don't have a specific brief. I think anything about domestic policy would be very, very difficult to be a cabinet member from the Lords for because the interest in Parliament and the um, the wish to question uh, uh, relevant ministers is by MPs is so great that I think it just wouldn't be sustainable to have somebody in the Lords for something, so, for example, as Health Secretary. That's actually another question that's just occurred to me. Presumably, MPs can't even ask them written questions if they're in the Lords. No, they certainly can't. Now, what I did think was interesting is that this, the, in 2009, when Lord Mandelson was, was first Secretary of State and Secretary of State for Trade and Industry, he, the Speaker then at the time, John Burko, looked to set up some sort of system whereby MPs could question a member of the House of Lords from Westminster Hall instead of uh, the House of Commons Chamber, and those plans didn't really get off the ground. But I do wonder with someone so significant as the Foreign Secretary to be in that role, whether there will be the uh, the possibility of, of, of a some kind of system set up. But of course, as things stand, the Andrew Mitchell, who is effectively the, the, the Foreign Secretary's number two, will answer questions in the House of Commons. Um, and he, of course, does sit around the cabinet table as well. And that raises, I, mean, and, and I know we, we uh, 
don't often talk about international issues on our podcast, um, but I think that's quite an interesting power base around international development because both David Cameron and Andrew Mitchell are very committed to the 0.7% of GDP to be spent on international development and saw it as part of Britain's moral role as well as uh, an opportunity to promote British soft power internationally. Uh, and of course, that was abandoned as a pledge uh, a few a few prime ministers ago. can't remember exactly which one. They all blurred into one after a while. Uh, but it'd be interesting to see whether there's a push to bring that back as part of our uh, new phase of international diplomacy led by Baron Cameron. Should we talk about the other changes at the cabinet level? That we well, we've, talk, we've talked about um, David Cameron coming in. We haven't talked about Suella Braverman going out. Um, and it, if you read the choreography of what's been going on, it was very clear that her cards were marked and her chips were down and her, her boots were burned, or whatever analogy you want to use, well before that weekend. But I frankly couldn't understand why she was allowed to remain in government for so long, having openly defied number 10 and openly uh, used inflammatory language around one of the very few events which is a genuine opportunity for the country to come together, which was remembered Sunday. I did think it was a brutal sacking in many ways. He did it on the phone first thing in the morning, not allowing her any opportunity to get out uh, and resign in advance. It was done incredibly swiftly. And of course, that kicked off the whole reshuffle, uh, which... But she, she surely she must have seen it coming. Well, I think there was no clear uh, idea of when the reshuffle would come. So the, her sacking effectively kicked off the whole thing. Um, so it wasn't, it, but he didn't give her that opportunity to, to, you know, even an hour to get out of the blocks and say, I am resigning. Um, so it was, you know, it was clear that number 10 wanted to sack her. And to be honest, she probably uh, expected it to happen. But I think the speed at which it happened maybe came as a bit of a surprise. It wasn't clear until Monday morning that it definitely was going to be a reshuffle that day. I think worth touching on some of the other names as well who were sacked or resigned. Therese Coffey, of course, was the deputy prime minister under Liz Truss. She uh, officially resigned from the government, um, but I think it's been fairly clear that she was actually sacked. And I think her removal has been fairly common knowledge for a long time. You saw Jeremy Quinn as well. He was the, the minister of the cabinet office, uh, yeah. fairly junior job. He resigned uh, from the from the cabinet. And then there were a whole slew of other ministers at the sort of minister of state level, which I thought was interesting, who were resigning. Um, some of those like Nick Gibb and Will Quince, who were in schools and health respectively, who uh, are standing down at the election. You saw people like George Freeman, yeah. uh, who was who, who stand down? Just stood down. Rachel McLean, the housing minister, who was was sacked, uh, which I think caused a fair amount of upset amongst the cabinet uh, and some of her key supporters within the cabinet. Who who was uh, the, the fact that she was removed? And then, of course, we've seen whether in the cabinet or at a more junior level, a whole load of new people come in, people that maybe people haven't seen before, people elected in twenty nineteen. Uh, that would be have been promoted rapidly, really, to the highest jobs in government. And presumably, presumably, there's all sorts of things going on here. But I would imagine 
some MPs who are standing down from Parliament will want to wind down gently and presumably shorten the period of time before they're allowed to look for another job after the general election. Uh, some MPs will be wanting to make a profile for themselves. The Prime Minister, I'm sure, will be wanting to, will have wanted to uh, demonstrate fresh blood as well, you know, to sort of counterbalance the is David Cameron the only person you could think of kind of line of attack. Um, but I agree, it's been it's quite interesting to see the amount of churn and although the headlines are on the cabinet figures, you, know, you and I have both worked with governments long enough to realise that uh, actually ministers of state are quite important because Oh, slightly away from the headlines, they are often the people who do a lot of the uh, careful, detailed work that government needs. Uh, and uh, the the level of changes, I think, is quite significant this time around in government. Yes, and those ministers of state and even more junior parliamentary secretaries, they really are doing the hard yards behind the scenes. And we should never forget that when we're, you know, we're thinking about uh government and it, it it is really you know it's not just about being in that top tier in the cabinet but actually you can have a huge amount of influence and do a lot of work as a minister of state or a parliamentary intersectory of state worth just running through some of the other names that joined the cabinet as well we saw richard holden he's the mp for northwest durham uh in the northeast which is apparently abolished at the election he uh has been a... quite sad about you know because that's my that's the constituency i grew up in and uh uh, I'm I'm very fond of, and if I'd ever wanted to be an MP, I would have wanted to be an MP for Durham Northwest. I think. Well, you might not have lost it in the way that uh, Laura Pickcock did in 2019. Uh, well, um, you might very well think that I couldn't possibly comment. Um, well, he's been made chairman of the Conservative Party, replacing Greg Hans. He's only been there for a matter of months. Victoria Atkins, who actually we held a really fantastic social mobility event with earlier this year, back in April. She's been made Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. Really, really important job and really there, you know, one of the Prime Minister's top priorities. So I think, um, you know, a very big promotion for her. You've got Laura Trotz, who was Special Advisor to David Cameron for many years. She becomes Chief Secretary to the Treasury. And of course, the big return for Esther McVeigh, who served in David Cameron's cabinet for several years and in Theresa May's as well, and has been made uh, officially, I think it's called Minister Without Portfolio, but uh, it has been briefed out as Minister for Common Sense, which is a an interesting new job that they've created. And it kind of begs the question, is there only one person in government with common sense then? Well, as, quite as, and, 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 and why do you need a minister for it? Uh, I, I, I would worry, given that she's developed a career as a news presenter for a certain channel other right-wing channels are available should that be your choice of viewing um i, I worry that she's basically been brought into stoke of the culture wars uh, and that's just to link back to uh the former home secretary suella braverman didn't just stoke the culture wars she seemed to enjoy throwing petrol on the flames as well and I thought her resignation letter, probably one of the most extraordinary resignation letters I've ever seen. Uh, none of this, I, I was very grateful to serve in your government and, you know, I will continue to be loyal 
from the backbenchers kind of tone, which is the the usual convention. No, this was a full on attack on the prime minister, and in effect, I thought a, a an outline of her leadership bit. Yes, and it is clear she is not going to go quietly and be supportive from the backbenchers. I think the line that probably haunts Rishi Sunak the most in that was uh, the final one. It said, I will continue to support your government delivering a true conservative agenda. And that very much is not full support from the backbenchers as you would get from most sacked ministers. Oh, you see, I think, see, I think that's the language of scoundrels because that sort of implies that she's the person who can interpret uh, what true conservative values are and anybody else's interpretation is less valid than hers. And I think that's really quite arrogant. We saw a bit of that in the Corbyn years uh, in Labour uh, with people basically saying, you know, we are the people who are the the the, 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 the guardians of the Labour Party's conscience, as if those of us who weren't ardent Corbynites didn't have any values of our own and weren't loyal enough. It's I, I really don't like that kind of uh, language in politics. And let's not forget... Suella Braverman, uh, this isn't just about political positioning. She questioned the operational independence of the police and tried to bully the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police to ban an event which would have been illegal to do so. Now, that is not something that any elected official should do, let alone the Home Secretary who's ultimately responsible for this. And then, of course, later in the week, uh, oh, sorry, earlier this week, we saw the uh, Supreme Court unanimously rule against uh, the government's uh, approach to uh, dealing with asylum claims uh, by ruling that uh, the, the so-called Rwanda policy is unlawful. Uh, you know, but this, is, this, is, this is not somebody who has a great record of success in office. Uh, and I think she's shown herself, frankly, to be really rather shallow. Well, one of the things that I think people need to try and find out at the beginning is how much support does she actually have amongst the Conservative backbenchers? There seems to be this view that she has huge, widespread support amongst both the party and MPs. But the reality is she did stand at a leadership election and came, I think, fourth or fifth. Um, this is certainly not somebody with huge levels of support last year. There's a real question as to whether that's changed at all, perhaps even gone down. Well, and... Part of me wonders whether, because she she has one or two sort of senior figures who are her sort of mentors, I suppose is the word that you'd use. Uh, and part of me wonders whether actually she's been a bit naive and been a bit used by them. It's certainly an interesting question. Um, should we touch on some of the changes in the Labour Party this week? Yes. So, well, resignations from the government. Some resignations in Labour too over the vote in the Commons on Wednesday uh, on a ceasefire uh, in the Israel-Hamas war, uh, which was the, the the motion put down by the SNP, which I'm sure had, they never had any intention of trying to make life Labour uh, difficult for Labour MPs. I'm sure that was never part of their thinking at all. Um, it's quarter quarter of the parliamentary Labour Party, more than quarter of the parliamentary Labour Party, uh, defied the Labour Whip, and I don't think. That, and, and we saw we saw what I, I think eight or ten 
resignations from, from bench roles from Labour MPs, the most high profile of which was Jess Phillips, which I'm really quite sad about and might touch on Jess in a moment. I think that the difference between the Labour resignations and the Conservative ones that we've seen played out through the reshuffle, for me, is that none of the Labour uh, resignations have fundamentally attacked Keir Starmer's judgment or said that this is an unsustainable position or whatever. They've basically had a, had an honest and uh, legitimate difference of opinion and felt that they couldn't maintain the collective discipline of remaining in the shadow team. And I think that's, it, although resignation is ever easy, actually, I think that's quite honourable. I think there's a there's a question as to why Keir Starmer took such a firm line to sack them. There was no possibility of a free vote. There was no... Labour was taking a really hard line on this. And why do you think they've done that? Uh, well, partly because Keir knows that um, in, in sharp contrast to his predecessor as Labour leader, uh, where there was a huge amount of concern from uh, Jewish communities in the UK about their safety, uh, Keir not only knows politically, but also I think feels morally that he has to be very clear and consistent about dealing with any suggestions of anti-Semitism. That doesn't mean blanket support for the Israeli government and their actions, but I think he can also see the international challenge of a, a ceasefire potentially allowing Hamas to regroup and reform and rearm and in effect prolonging the conflict there. And of course, nobody wants bloodshed. The stories that are coming out of Gaza are absolutely horrific and who wouldn't be moved by that? And of course, the natural instinct is for people to say the fighting should stop. But we shouldn't also forget that there was a ceasefire until October the 7th, and Hamas broke it by killing 1,400 Israelis and taking hostages. Let's not forget the hostages are still, some of the hostages, many of the hostages are still missing. Uh, and it's difficult to see how you could negotiate any kind of ceasefire before the return of the hostages. Uh, uh, and that must be a deeply, deeply distressing thing for their families to have to deal with. And there's also the the, the, the long-standing challenge that if this isn't brought to a head, and if there isn't, I think, by the way, some uh, interventions from some of the neighbouring governments around there, uh, then, like Lebanon and Jordan, then I think actually, you know, this could just prolong the whole thing uh, for many decades to come. So, for all sorts of reasons, I think the line that Keir has taken isn't just the sensible line to take in terms of what the outcomes should be here, but also politically, it sort of reinforces the agenda that he's consistently set out uh, within the Labour Party as a as I say, as a sharp contrast to Jeremy Corbyn's time. There's been eight resignations in total from the front bench 
as a result of yesterday's vote. There was one last week as well. But one of the things I think was particularly interesting is half of them were part of the Socialist Campaign Group, which is the, the sort of most left-wing group of Labour MPs in Parliament. Do you think Keir Starmer might have seen an upside in them re being removed from the shadow front bench and being able to further shape the party in his own image? Well, um, never waste a good crisis is, is, the, is the political advice. And it's, out of thought, far better to have seen the campaign group members resign on principle over this issue than resign on another issue where they could be more damaging to Labour's prospects. There's no doubt that Labour looks very divided on this issue amongst the public. And that has, to a certain extent, I think, undermined a lot of the work that Keir has put in to try to bring the party together. But then there's also, I think, a question, and this is, this is something that's always puzzled me about Labour, why international issues like this should be so much more prominent in people's minds than some of our domestic challenges. And we have real issues in this country around the cost of living, the, the uh, shortage of housing for people to get on the property ladder, the inequities in the education system, the unfair uh, distribution of resources in the economy. You know, so many issues that, uh, for me, are real motivators in politics. And uh, I, I often worry that politics is becoming more tribal and about identities rather than about public service. And if this is the main focus of people's attention, I, I've never understood what the political upside is of bringing the conflict in another part of the world into British politics. It doesn't make sense to me. I mean, there's been some very significant figures in many ways resigning as a result of this vote, particularly and very sadly, I think, Jess Phillips, the Shadow Minister for Domestic Violence, who has genuinely cross-party been doing some really good work on domestic violence uh, well, you know, a lot of work with Theresa May actually in this regard as well you know very different political views but um it is a shared agenda and there's other people as well you know Yasmin Qureshi the the shadow women and equalities minister Paula Barker who uh co was covering devolution in the English region there's a you know Rachel Hopkins as well the shadow veterans minister who actually led well alongside you know, led locally alongside Peter Kyle the camp the Labour campaign in mid-Bedfordshire so it's a real mixed bag and people who actually in many ways have been seen as very effective who've all resigned as a result of, of this. Well, he's not yet to fill any of those positions. Do you think he'll be able to? Well, uh, and of course it's not just the... Uh, he hasn't just got to find 10 people from the rest of the parliamentary or 8 people from the rest of the parliamentary party. He's got to find 10 people or 8 people from those in the parliamentary party who didn't vote against the party whip. So, as you, as you say, he's fishing in quite a small pool at the moment. And we may see, well, we've seen a bit of doubling up on jobs recently, and we may see a bit more of that. Um, ostensibly as a, 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 a way of demonstrating closer working between different teams, which can sometimes work in silos. But uh, I think, uh, yeah, the... 
I'm trying to think who the Labour equivalent of Michael Fabricant is. Uh, you know, because you know that if the government knocks on the door of Michael Fabricant for a job in the Conservative Party, they really are in trouble. And I'm trying to think who that who the equivalent person is in Labour. Um, I, I could name a few names, but most of them aren't actually Labour MPs at the moment. They're suspended for one reason or another. Well, you could maybe think of uh, someone who's recently been. I mean, one of the one of the things that might be quite interesting in terms of this reshuffle is. Is it an opportunity to bring back some of those people who are talented, but that Keir Starmer doesn't want in the shadow cabinet and therefore aren't in jobs? I'm thinking Jim McMahon could be an answer to to that. Well, I mean, Jim would Jim would Jim would be great, uh, and yeah, and of course, the fact that people have resigned this time on a genuine point of principle, I think, means that some of them, and hopefully Jess Phillips is amongst this crowd, might not actually be on the back benches for very long. You know, there'd be other, I think, potentially other opportunities to bring them back. I can see how Keir, having set out his line, had to be absolutely crystal clear about holding it and not allowing any exceptions. Um, and I think the concession that was made was that uh, abstention by a shadow minister wouldn't be considered uh, a vote of uh, a vote against the leadership, but a vote against uh, the leadership's position would be. Uh, so. You know, there were some concessions, I think, to try to make it as smooth as possible as a process. But yeah, let's hope that people like Jess Phillips are back in the Labour team, the front bench team before too long. And, you know, I I actually happened to see Jess Phillips the night before uh, all of this took place in Parliament uh, because I was at an event where uh, one of the things that I did was uh, I bought her book, which is The Life of an MP, uh, which I started reading on the tube on the way back, and it's fascinating read. Um, but it's about her life in politics, and there is a section in the book talking about the voting process and elections and what happens on election night, and a section on spoilt ballots. And she points out that the majority of spoilt ballots are people drawing penises on the ballot paper. Uh, and, uh, of course... If the penis is next to a individual's name, uh, regardless of what the voter might have intended, that is interpreted by election officers as a positive preference for that candidate. And in fact, in my time in local government, I'm sure I got three or four votes over the years by similar such uh, drawings next to my name. Whether or not they were intended to be complimentary or not, I don't know. But anyway, so she talks. This is a, basically a way of her talking about penises. Uh, in her book uh, and she autographed the book for me and uh, actually drew a penis in it as well on the front page uh, and I texted her the next day to say you know great to see you last night really sorry to see you step down from the front bench and she texted me back saying thanks really sad about it too however I'm very proud that my last act as a shadow minister was to draw you a penis well, which to hell do you, I think, ever you know, I'm just going Yes. Well, and, and, and do I think she's such a down-to-earth character, and we need more people like that in Parliament, I think. That is definitely very true. Well, Nick, it's been great to talk today, um, as always, and I'm sure there'll be even more to cover next week, particularly once we've had the autumn statement. Well, and the, the other thing that uh, happened this week... Um, and it's in my mind because I'm looking forward to the next season of The Crown. 
Uh, it was the king's 75th birthday. Daddy's and, breaks through. And, uh, happy birthday. Well, in, uh, well, and he is almost exactly a quarter of a century older than I am. Uh, so I had a significant birthday last week as well. Uh, not that I'm looking for sympathy or compliments or anything like that, but we tend to forget that the king is that old. And uh, I think it raises an interesting question about his role in modernizing the monarchy, what that means in terms of uh, the future of the constitution. We might want to touch in one of our future conversations about the House of Lords. Uh, and, uh, of course, there was that wonderful quote from Nadine Doris where uh, she uh, talked about how difficult it was for somebody like her to get into the House of Lords. But if you were an old Etonian, she mentioned David Cameron by name, but that's who she meant, all he needed to do was have a word with the king. Uh, so uh, it's been brick back to plenty for uh, Rishi Sunak this week. And not been the easiest week for Kia either. Let's see what next week brings. Well, look forward to speaking again then. Bye. Bye. Hang on. Yeah, it's still upload. Thanks for listening. We hope you found this episode of The Friday Take interesting and informative. And if you did, please subscribe and give us a rating. And be sure to share with your friends, family and colleagues. Tune in next week for another episode of The Friday Take.